Welcome to The Capital Cyclist, a podcast from Hosking Partners that, like our investment team, goes anywhere and everywhere across the investment landscape. Please subscribe to stay up to date. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the third episode of The Capital Cyclist podcast with me, Stephen Chambers. I'm an analyst at Hosking Partners, and I'm joined by Jeremy Hosking and John Seagram. And today we're going to discuss Japan. For those of you that don't know, Hosking Partners is a long-only equity strategy based out of our office here in London. Uh, we have a single product focused on the capital cycle approach to investing. If you want to find out more, you can visit our website, hoskingpartners.com. John, great to have you here. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. If you had to tell the story briefly, perhaps starting with Abe's Three Arrows or, or, or going back a little bit beyond that. How would you um, describe to somebody that's not so familiar with the history of uh, the Japanese financial markets, the journey to this point? So, yes, yeah, so you can go back, let's say, to the bursting of the bubble right at the beginning of, of, uh, of 1990 um, and the effect that that has had on, on sort of corporate mentality. Um, and the reality is that what corporate Japan does is they run their company balance sheets as you and I would like to run our own household balance sheets. They are hugely risk adverse at every opportunity. They will pay down debt. They'll have as big a pile of cash as possible. And this is largely to um, because of this sort of anxiety about things um, you know, things could go wrong again. And you've also, it wasn't just the bursting of the bubble. Of course, you had uh, the great tsunami, you had Fukushima, you had the Kobe quake. I mean, there is one company in Japan uh, called Rinai, which makes probably the most efficient gas boilers in the world. And they sit on a billion dollars and they don't call it an Armageddon fund, but that's what it is. And it's there in case there were to be another tsunami or an earthquake or Mount Fuji were to erupt. And that's just sort of emblematic and symptomatic of how all of corporate Japan or the vast majority of corporate Japan have thought really ever since the bursting of the bubble. And before that, John, I mean, I know we're going back into the depths of, of time here, but it, it wasn't like that at all. Or is this a part of the Japanese psyche in a way that's always um, projected itself? Um, I, I think it, it, it was part of the Japanese psyche. Um, and I think that there was the whole trauma of, of the end of, of the last war. But actually what happened in the 1980s um, was this extraordinary asset bubble, which was caused largely by the, the, this, the, the yen continued to strengthen and the central bank cut interest rates in an attempt to stop the yen sorry, strengthening further. Um, and this create, created an asset bubble which got completely out of control. And, and certainly in the latter part of the 80s, um, if you looked at, at Japanese corporate earnings, 40% of, of their bottom line was not coming from their operating businesses at all. It was coming from speculating in financial and real estate markets. So they'd gone from a, you know, a relatively sort of conservative mindset to, a, a, a frankly, a sort of high stakes, high risk sort of gambling mindset um, because the, the rewards of doing so were so phenomenal, in, in particularly in the decade from the beginning of 1980 to uh, to 1989. Um, and then, of course, the reaction to it has been very severe in terms of, of, of the changing of mentality. But I think one of the things that 
one's got to mention is is there are many ramifications of, of the demographic situation in Japan, but there's a very obvious sort of reality, which is that you've got to be as old as me now. I'm 58 to remember the bursting of the bubble. So increasingly, or certainly beginning to get managements in Japan who don't actually remember the bursting of the bubble. They were children when it happened. Um, and so that sort of risk aversion that perhaps their parents had is beginning to wane. We've spoken about your perspectives as um, perhaps uh, the ultimate specialist on, on Japan and Japanese investments. Jeremy, your career has been as a generalist investor. And um, well, this is great timing because you've just returned from your first investor trip to Japan. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first time in 40 years investing um, that you have been overweight Japan. Um, what about the situation strikes you as so attractive right now? At a time when global stock markets are, generally speaking, expensive, with some honorable exceptions like the UK, for obvious reasons, the Japanese share market is fantastically cheap, and it is much, much cheaper than it looks. And the reason for that, as John has said, is because of 30 years of unnecessarily hoarding more and more corporate assets, with the result that if you designate these assets as surplus to requirements, the cash and the cross holdings and the property, um, the enterprise values of many Japanese companies are close to zero or even negative. So what, what I find intriguing about the change of approach where Japanese companies start to shrink their assets, that will inevitably lead to higher return on assets. And that, in my experience, will inevitably lead to higher share prices. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, it's the absolute sort of pivotal story going forward. And I mean, the way I encapsulate it is that Japan at the moment is not a return on equity story. That's the, the income that's generated from the stock of equity. Um, stage one is 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 it's a return of equity story. I returning the excess capital to shareholders, which um, I think will be and is beginning to be hugely remunerative. So what I like about it is that the execution risk, because it involves shrinking the balance sheet, and anyone can do that, they don't even have to manage their core businesses that well to achieve this uplift in uh, in valuation. Yeah, and I think also you you can put it into the context as a trans-Pacific context, which is that if you if you look at the stock of net assets in Japan, tangible net assets, as against the stock of tangible net assets on the other side of the Pacific in America, basically what corporate America has spent the last ten years doing is returning all of its net assets, and I mean all of its net assets to shareholders. Um, and Japan hasn't even begun. And it does mean that the shareholder returns in America going forward are now entirely dependent um, upon uh, the, the, the ability of, of corporate America to, to grow earnings, whereby in, in, in Japan, they, couldn't, they, they don't need to grow earnings to, to, to increase shareholder returns year by year for the next two decades. And of course, of course, corporate Japan will grow earnings, so that's a, that'll be a boon as well. But the, the potential in Japan, given that America has taken this sort of what I call the nettle model, the net tangible asset-like model to its 
inevitable and logical conclusion, I, there are no net tangible assets left uh, in corporate America, means that uh, the potential in Japan is, is really phenomenal. I mean, is it too simple to say that um, a functioning stock market that returns dividends to pensioners who become investors rather than savers, is it too simplistic to frame what's happening in Japan as a centralized effort to to achieve that outcome. No, I, I don't think it's too simple at all. I think it's absolutely right. I mean, again, if you look if you look back at the role of corporate Japan historically, the role of corporate Japan was to you know, ostensibly to give security and lifetime employment to its workers, to its employees. But the, the reality in Japan now is that Japan is acutely short of employees and workers because of the shrinking population, the dramatically shrinking population. So the new social contract in Japan is no longer to provide lifetime employment for, uh, for the good, pe- the good uh, employees of Japan, but arguably to give them an income in their retirement. Um, that, I think, and, and Kishida, who is the current prime minister in Japan, I think absolutely understands that. And he is, uh, has dramatically expanded the what's called the NISA scheme. So the NISA, N-I-S-A, again, is based exactly on the UK ISA scheme. And he has, uh, from the 1st of January next year, um, he's tripled the sort of annual allowances. And he's also said that any investments in a NISA scheme, uh, the tax benefits accrue for life forever, um, where before there was a limit. So there's an absolute understanding <clears throat> by the Japanese government um, that the, the way to address, certainly one of the ways to help address this, this um, relentless rise in the retired population in Japan is to encourage them to invest in the stock market, collect lovely dividends, for their retirement income. I think a great many investors will perhaps be listening to this and uh, understandably saying that to some extent I've heard this all before. Steve, I think that's absolutely right. Um, What people will want to know is why are the good things that have been promised from Japanese investments for 20 years now now going to happen? And uh, what I'm interested to ask John about is why he's so confident that A, a tipping point has been reached, and B, the tipping point was only really passed in March this year with the Tokyo Stock Exchange's intervention about criticizing companies with a price-to-book value of below one times, which basically means they were criticizing almost the entire corporate sector of 3,700 companies. Yes, and so I think that's it is this sort of great confluence of these these very earnest attempts by the government, by the ministries, to improve the productivity of capital, ergo shareholder returns. It's it's a willingness by the Tokyo Stock Exchange itself to sort of, as I said, to embrace this role as the referee or as the ultimate arbiter of corporate governance. It's because the demographics have have reached, I think, a sort of tipping point, a tipping point whereby. Corporate Japan is so acutely short of labor at the moment that it's your national duty to shed it if you can in order to allow them to gain work in other sort of areas of the economy. It's it's also a function, I think, of 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 this sort of the beginnings of inflation in Japan, which completely changes the mindset of, of both corporate mindset and, and I think Japanese retail mindset. Then there is this other incredibly important factor, which is the very significant rise of 
activism and engagement in Japan. So um, there have been two great waves of, of activism and engagement in Japan. And when I talk about engagement, I'm, I'm talking about shareholders who, who you know, engage in a forthright way with Japanese companies. And that can be you know, done all behind closed doors, or it can be sort of quite confrontational when push comes to shove. But Japan has now got about 40 different activists in some shape or form of probably the most sort of internationally famous one or the one that people will have heard of is Value Act. Um, but there are um, a large number of activists, both in Japan and offshore, who have spent the last five or six years targeting Japanese companies, most particularly with a very overcapitalized Japanese companies trying to encourage and goad and force, if necessary, them to improve shareholder returns, balance sheet um, returns, and ergo the return on equity. Um, and by and large, they have been very successful in doing so. And you now have a situation in Japan where these 40 or so activist and engagement funds own if you look at their assets under management, it's equivalent to about 1% of the, the total market capitalization of Japan. But they're invested in about 370 companies, which is about 10% of, of the actual number of companies. So on average, they own 10% of the companies that they're invested in. So they are beginning to have um, a, a significant impact. And, and the other thing <laughs> is that they've, activism in Japan now is so prevalent that it's very hard if you're um, a Japanese company, not to be aware that there are these forthright individuals who might buy uh, appear on your shareholder re uh, register uh, and then begin to engage with you in a forthright way. So you're beginning to get a situation where Japanese companies are trying to do things before uh, they're forced to do things by, by engagement funds and activists. And the thing is that all these activists and all these engagement funds are encouraging the rather more traditional long-only firm managers also to become sort of more engaged uh, and in some cases even activist. And this is an incredibly important part of the story because by and large corporate Japan to date hasn't done anything unless it's been really made to. But what these, um, these funds are achieving is basically forcing corporate, a reluctant corporate Japan to change and it's created a momentum all of itself. Um, I think it's important when one looks at the last 30 years and Japanese companies hoarding assets and the assets went up and up and up and the return on assets went down and down and down, obviously, because that's how return on assets works. Um, it's, it's, it's tempting to look at it as pretty much a catastrophic corporate failure. But there's another aspect to all of this, and that is investor failure as well. As the companies were hoarding assets, there was no reason necessarily for that to have led to the extraordinary value undervaluations we see today, it occurred because the investors didn't bother to look at the hidden assets as they made their assessments about value. And so the stock market did reflect the return on assets because it didn't, and this is a criticism of the sell side and the, and the buy side, they didn't look at the hidden assets and attribute some sort of value to them. Um, whether the companies expected that to happen, I don't know. But if you look at reports of Japanese companies, there's very little about hidden assets, and a lot of which there are plenty, and much is written about 
current developments on the profit and loss account. Yeah, I think that's very true. And it's created some extraordinary situations. I mean, there's a, for example, there's a, a, a railway company called Kese. Um, and Kese, um, 20 years ago, ended up um, owning 15% of Oriental Land. So Oriental Land is, is the company that runs Tokyo Disneyland, which is very successful. When they owned 15% of it 20 years ago, it was worth about 6% of their market cap. What has happened since is that uh, the share price of Oriental Land has gone up and up and up and up, deservedly so. And so now, Kese Rail's stake in Oriental Land is worth more than twice its market cap. So you could congratulate Oriental Land on just hanging on in there because this asset has gone up, um, has outperformed anything that KSA Rail has done. Apart, you know, they run a very efficient railway operation, but it's not terribly exciting. Um, but you, you, you've begun to get these anomalies now, of which this is a, is a very good example, where it's, it's unsustainable. Um, and inevitably, what will happen with KSA Rail is that shareholders, I think, will are they increasingly asking the question? You know, it, it was all it was perhaps okay to have it twenty years ago when it was a tiny percentage of your market cap, but now this one investment is worth more than twice your entire market cap. And there are just there are endless examples. That's quite a good extreme extreme one, but there are endless examples to some greater or lesser extent where that's the case. And corporate Japan is aware um, of its assets, and it does try to hide them. Um, I mean, for example, if you look at, um, I'm very focused always on on receivables and payables. It does seem to be that a number of companies in Japan have very large receivables compared to their payables. And that's not because, you know, there's any risk of not collecting them. Um, It's basically because what they're trying to conceal (laughs) is the cash on the balance sheet. Um, and and then if you just look at the sort of accounting policies, you know, there's this whole problem of of cross shareholdings. The reality is in Japan is that that eighty percent of the Jap- Japanese stock market owns the other twenty percent of the Japanese stock market, which means that if somehow you could get your hands on eighty percent of it, you'd own all of it. Um, and uh, and the Japanese are always call these uh, they call these long term investments rather than securities holdings, and they are securities holdings. They're not long term investments. They've just held them for a long time. And again, rather as to Jeremy mentioned earlier, if you sort of if you lift those up um, to the sort of enterprise value line and you take them off the enterprise value, enterprise values start falling very rapidly. And then with the land assets, so in Japan, if you use any building, um, your headquarter building or a factory or anything like that, you basically you're allowed to depreciate it very heavily. So they do they depreciate it all their operating fixed assets get depreciated almost to nothing. And, and so then the, the, the real value of those assets then becomes very, very understated. Um, again, ironically, going back to Kese Rail, Kese Rail had an old headquarter building, which is now a, um, a, a rather um, um, underwhelming hotel in Tokyo. But anyway, uh, they've moved to a new headquarter building. And um, I think it's on the books um, at something like $95. Because when it was the headquarter building, they just depreciated it to nothing. So there are a lot of hidden assets uh, in Japan. And I think the return of these has and, and the monetization that we'll see um, could be, like I said, will, will be enormously remunerative to shareholders that make it happen. I think, um, you know, many people question why now. And there was a, a wave of activism in Japan 
well, some time ago now, but it, it largely failed. Um, private equity tried and withdrew, and many, many equity investors uh, began this journey a decade ago or more and probably had quite similar theses to the one we've just discussed. And, and they're still there with um, investments on a half times price to book. What's different this time, John? Why, why well, the, the first we... activist wave, which in Japan was really started, I suppose, in about 2002. And um, there were you know, a, a number of Japanese um, protagonists, of which the most well-known was an extraordinary man called Murakami, who was a former bureaucrat uh, in the Ministry of Energy, uh, Trade and, uh, uh, and Industry. And um, he felt very strongly that the child returns needed to improve in Japan. He took a very, very confrontational approach um, with the, the Japanese companies that he targeted. There was also uh, a US firm called Steel Partners run by a man called at the time Warren Lichtenstein, and he also took a very confrontational approach. Um, and there were a number of other sort of perhaps less high-profile activists and engagement funds at the time. But basically what happened is that, that corporate Japan closed ranks. Um, and also the reality is I think that the, 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 the ministries and the government itself were unhappy with the pace at what, uh, what was the pace at which what was the, these activists were trying to achieve. And, um, and actually it all came, they all came quite badly unstuck in the end. Um, Mr. Murakami himself, who was the, the, the most nominal of them, was accused of insider trading. Um, and uh, and then, of course, the, the, the GFC happened, and that rather took uh, took the steam out of it. And and what has and then you had a second wave, which I would argue sort of really started in about 2017. But what happened, I think, why the second wave was different from the first is one is that that activism and engagement funds had learned, and 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 in fact, um, initially. Um, engagement funds and activists was 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 much more discreet, obviously being forthright, but being forthright behind closed doors rather than on the front page of the Nikkei. But more importantly, um, there was, I think, implicit support for what they were doing from the government and from the ministries in a way that the first wave um, had rather antagonized the government and the ministries. And I think that's another very important example, I think, of, of, of this change in attitudes, which has been organic since Abe arrived in 2012. Perhaps a, a closing um, question to both of you, maybe Jeremy first. Um, over the last few years, as we've revisited Japan and, and delved into this opportunity, what stood out to you as most exciting or enjoyable um, as you've uh, engaged with the various companies in which we're now invested um, or new prospects um, relative to other theses, other countries that you've looked at in the past? Well, what I, what I observed over my career is that the process of shareholder value enhancement and asset-like business models has generally been bottom-up and imposed, and companies have adopted it with the objective of making the management wealthier through stock options and other paraphernalia. And in Japan, that hasn't happened. And because Japanese companies were simply not susceptible to bottom-up influences. But now the whole excitement of this tipping point is that the government is telling them to do it. 
And so, of course, this has happened in Japan before in history, that once an authority figure tells them to do things, it's a very homogenous country, so they can now move sort of in a herd without feeling... Actually, it will be the new virtue signaling, won't it? We are moving in a shareholder value direction, and they will expect plaudits from the government, and they'll get them. So not only do we have the valuation but we now have the starting gun being fired and the near certainty that Japanese companies will follow through on it. In two weeks, we didn't meet one company that didn't know what their price-to-book value ratio was, <laughs> especially if it was below one. <laughs> and I, I think 10 years ago, they wouldn't have known what a price-to-book value ratio was. I don't think it would have had any relevance to them. Anyway, it's different now. And John, I mean... You've looked at Japan for such a long time, and, and I think um, we've explored some of the reasons why you're so excited right now. Over the coming years, what do you expect to see? Yeah, I mean, I think that so the, if you look at what has really happened to date in terms of change, it's been a number of companies that have at last sort of addressed their shareholder returns and their, their overcapitalized balance sheets. That's just stage one. Stage two is that and it's beginning to happen, is that if you look at a, the makeup of a lot of Japanese companies, very often they have they have a fantastic sort of core business, and then they have sort of legacy businesses, which are anything but fantastic, but they keep going with them. Um, so there needs to be an awful lot of, of restructuring, I think, um, of business portfolios, which basically involves, that's, it's, that's not as dramatic as it sounds, because basically it involves them biting the bullet on loss-making businesses and jettisoning them, um, or on low-margin businesses. And that seems to me stage two. And then stage three, um, and in the, the uh, Ministry of Trade and Industry and the Ministry of Finance have just revised the guidelines, which they call the, the guidelines for fair M&A. And that's so lovely in Japanese. It must be fair M&A. Um, uh, but what they are deliberately trying to achieve is, is consolidation in Japan. Because, of course, one of the... The reality is that if you're a very overcapitalized company, you can sort of sit there doing absolutely nothing for as long as you want, unless somebody forces you to do so. But I mean, in Japan, there are 10 paper companies. Why has Japan got 10 paper companies, all of which are overcapitalized, I hasten to add? You know, it ought to probably have two paper companies. And so there, I think there's going to be, that will be the third stage, which will be a tremendous sort of intra-sector consolidation in order to try and create sort of national and, and global champions. So this, this story will run and run. Uh, and, and I think foreigners, by and large, still have the same perception, which was you know, understandable and until relatively recently totally justified that, you know, Japan's a basket case and a value trap. And I would argue it's now completely the reverse. One aspect of the situation which intrigues me is how the structure of the global investment industry is uniquely unsuited to taking advantage of the opportunities in Japan, which are very diversified and very much in the mid-cap area. So not only is it an investment opportunity that Hosking Partners can take advantage of, the investment opportunities are such that it is extremely difficult for Mega Fund Limited to invest money in Japan at all, because they are completely captured by the prevailing orthodoxy that the global portfolio should have no more than 50 shares. So they can only buy the biggest companies, and that's not where the bargains are. 
Jeremy, John, thank you very much for joining us today um, and discussing Japan. If you're a client of CLSA and you don't already follow John's daily email, I recommend you do. Uh, fascinating insights on Japan uh, and many of the topics we discussed today. If you enjoyed our podcast, um, please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. You can find more content from Hosking Partners on our website, hoskinpartners.com, and you can find the podcast there too. Until the next time, goodbye. You've been listening to The Capital Cyclist, a podcast from Hosking Partners. Please do get in touch with any questions or queries. We'd love to hear from you.